from the Polium Center for Contemporary Media at DePaul University. I'm JNP, and this is Modern Media. We're doing a special podcast today, looking at net neutrality from several different angles. As the FCC prepares to vote on whether or not to roll back net neutrality regulations, I thought it might be important to ask some questions that I have, and that I'm guessing you have too. What's at stake here in terms of the democratic process, in terms of the politics of representation, in terms of innovation? How does this even work technically? And what are the policy implications? In order to get at some of these questions, I've asked four guests to come join me in the podcast studio. Professor Andrew Cullison from the Prindle Institute for Ethics at DePaul University, Professor Leanne Goins, Women, Gender, Sexuality Studies Department at DePaul University, Professor Doug Harms of the Computer Science Department at DePaul University, and Professor Barbara Cherry from the Media School at Indiana University. Our podcast will be distributed as four separate installments for ease of listening and sharing, but I hope you'll see them as being of a piece that seeks to expand our understanding of what's at stake with net neutrality. Part one, who cares about Netflix? In this installment, I sit down with Professor Andrew Cullison, the director of the Janet Prindle Institute for Ethics at DePaul University. And he's also the host of the Examining Ethics podcast, where he's spoken a few times on this issue of net neutrality. We'll link to those episodes on our website. I spoke with Andy about the ethical stakes of the net neutrality debates, and in particular, what it means for the democratic process. I want to start with a question, which is, when we talk about net neutrality, most of the time, we're hearing a rhetoric of, well, listen, they could slow your Netflix down, and they could slow Hulu down if they have a competing service, right? So Comcast might have a competing service to Netflix, and they're going to slow Netflix down. It's going to be harder to watch your favorite show. And my response is, okay, that's, that's a good example, but kind of who cares, right? Who cares if Netflix is a little slower? I can watch movies another way if I have to. But there are bigger stakes here. Yes. Yes. Yeah, I think there are much bigger stakes. First, let me let me go with the who cares why they slow down Netflix. Okay, good. Um, the reality is the, the internet service providers, they built a lot of stuff, but they didn't build all of it. Yeah. Right? The, the, the internet was initially a massive government-funded infrastructure project designed to encourage and foster innovation and communication. Right? So um, – there's enormous taxpayer investment in this innovation project. And then the internet service providers come on and they add a layer of it. They add a layer of pipes on yeah. top of this thing. But they didn't build like the big backbone part. And so there's a good question. So if, if there's so much taxpayer investment, why do some people who just glom on to these pipes suddenly get to do whatever they want, particularly since they're now controlling a vast share of our access to that big backbone? So yeah. you know, you might say – what right do they have to do that if if a large part of it was funded by taxpayer yeah. dollars? So that's, you know, so what? Well, we've already paid. You know, America has already paid quite a bit yeah. for the Internet. Um, and so America is entitled – th- Americans collectively are yeah. entitled to say, hey, like there are some ground rules here for anyone who wants to use this backbone that we've built. So that's, you know, that's a kind yeah. of so what purely from the – don't slow my Netflix down sure. angle, right? And I think that's a, good, that's a good answer to that. But I think there are even bigger stakes. Yeah. So the, the bigger stakes are internet service providers, if they're allowed to slow down, throttle, speed up, or block access to content or access to sites, 
There are other nefarious things that could be done that are not beyond the pale, um, particularly given what we've seen this election, like they're yeah. really not beyond the pale. What they could theoretically do is uh, internet service providers know quite a bit about your internet behavior based on the websites that you visit. And they can data mine that and figure out quite a bit about the political leanings of a household just based on the websites that they visit. Mm -hmm. So what they could theoretically do is with some fancy filtering um, and just a little bit of code, they could target swing voters in a swing state Mm -hmm. um, for an election. And if they wanted to, they could make it very difficult for the swing voters to see negative information about a candidate. They could make it easier for them to see positive information about a candidate. And they could effectively swing an election. And they could effectively swing an election without anyone really realizing what's going on because it wouldn't be obvious uh, because these people have just been sort of you know, cherry picked from the area, you know, a couple swing voters on Jefferson Street, a few <laughs> swing voters on East Poplar or whatever, yeah. right? And people would be really none the wiser that the swing voters are having their access to information manipulated. Yeah. That's a, that is a realistic possibility. So how would you respond then to somebody who says, okay, oh, I get that technically that's a realistic possibility. Is that realistic that a company like Comcast or Time Warner would want to take that kind of effort and really do that? I mean, what, what's their incentive? Uh, there's two ways. One, they're businesses. They're big businesses. Yeah. Um, so they have interests in economic policy. Um, there are going to be certain candidates that they favor based on the candidate's economic policy. So a large company like Comcast would have enormous incentive to favor one candidate over another. So Comcast could themselves, you know, do this. And so that, that's one thing. They do have an interest. Another way in which they might have an interest is they could this could be a paid service, right? They're you know a, yeah. a kind of clandestine service where you you know you take enormous revenue from folks to to offer this kind of service, and you use the word effort. It doesn't take a whole lot of effort right now with the way programming and data mining works. It it would be very very easy for uh, with a few lines of code to to flip a switch and. Find the swing voters, get a spit out of their addresses, yeah. get a spit out of their IP addresses, flip another switch, and then have a have a set program of which websites get sped up, which websites get slowed down, and you know it's it wouldn't be, I think, a very complicated thing. No, I, and I, I can see that because when you know when I call say Time Warner, my cable company, and I say, you know, um, I'm supposed to be getting this channel and it's not showing up. That person on the other end, if they're good can just call that up, flip a switch pretty much, and suddenly I'm getting that. I've had robots do that. Yes. So I call up and it's like (laughs) I'm talking to the robot and they say, hey, what is your issue? And they even do the little fake boop, 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 boop. (laughs) Um, And they say, it seems like you're having problems with your service. Here, let me reset it for you. And they reset. And I can see stuff happening on my router that a robot is doing. So, Yeah. Yeah. So one one other thing, though, one of the things we learned from the uh, fake news scandals, for instance, is that a lot of these things that happen are pretty agnostic politically. Like, if you can make money, it doesn't matter if you're a liberal or if this website is liberal or conservative, we're going to just do it for the money, right? So I hear you 100% about, you know, a Comcast is actually very much interested in having a president who will appoint an FCC that is more leaning toward their policies that are going to serve Comcast well. At the same time, Comcast uh, 
is going to be a pretty agnostic uh, site for you know they're 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 a business. They're going to make money no matter how they can make it. So a student asked me yesterday, how would this affect journalism? And my answer was, well, right off the bat, you might have a Comcast that then buys up a Breitbart and then wants to sort of slow down uh, or make more difficult your access to, say, the Washington Post. Does that seem – That's a very good point. I think that's an – so uh, I framed the Chicken Little disaster scenario <laughs> as Comcast is going to get in there and manipulate directly yeah. Yeah. Um, to get the candidate they, that they want. But another more – even more realistic scenario is what you're describing. The, the dilemma is that the ISP providers are also now getting in the business of content creation. So you have the delivery service yeah. and the creation service being run by the same person. So Comcast could buy up a bunch of media properties. Suddenly it's free yeah. to, to access that. Um, but you got to pay a premium to access the Washington Post and the yeah. New York Times. So that is a – that have a significant impact on the ways in which voters would be informed. What we're really talking about here, what's really at stake, is not just can I watch a Netflix movie, mm-hmm. but can I get the information I need to make reasonable choices about who I vote for, what policies I support. Right? Yeah, and I yeah I think that's absolutely right. That this is um, it has potential to significantly impact the political process and the ways in which people are informed. And if you look at the origins of even like founding fathers guiding principles on what the rules regarding the press should be, mm-hmm. they're almost always framed in terms of preserving the integrity of the democratic process. Free speech isn't there because we think there's just this fundamental right to say whatever you want. Free speech is there. It's derivative of that's what they thought the best way to preserve the integrity of the democratic process would be, which is to not make anybody shut up. And if you think about that as the kind of guiding principle for free speech laws, freedom of the press laws, then you should have a similar attitude toward things like net neutrality. You might think that given that a vast majority of Americans get their information via the internet this day, then net neutrality is probably one of the best ways to ensure that people are being maximally informed and that the marketplace of ideas really is a marketplace of ideas and not a marketplace, a free marketplace of ideas and not a marketplace that's monopolized by one person. Yeah. And so I think in some ways that's the battle that's going to be fought, which is what is the internet? What's it for? Which leads us back to that. Well, so what? I can't get my cat videos in time. Yeah. And I think as long as the issues are framed in those ways, it is going to seem like, well, this is a kind of weird, silly debate. Like why do we, you know, let people pay for faster Netflix if they want to sure. pay for faster Netflix. And it's the issues are a lot a lot broader than that. Well, thanks. Hey, thanks for having me. My guest for this installment was Professor Andrew Cullison, who's the director of the Janet Prindle Institute for Ethics at DePaul University. He's also the host of the Examining Ethics podcast. You can find a link to Examining Ethics on our website, www.modernmediapodcast.org. In part two, I'll be talking to Professor Leanne Goins, about net neutrality and the politics of representation. Modern Media is a production of the Pulliam Center for Contemporary Media at DePaul University. Thanks for listening. And until next time, I'm JNP, and this is Modern Media.